Sean Lynn in the pub for a dram with friends where we talk about faith, family, food, and fun. Pull up a chair and I'll pour you a drink. Episode 44. We welcome Deacon Harold Burke Sivers into the pub where he will talk about his life in law enforcement and service to the church. Sit back as I pour us a dram. I hope you're enjoying a dram with friends. Please like, subscribe, follow us on Heroic Men YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Please continue to pray for our mission or go to godsquad.ca to donate. All whiskeys are purchased by myself for use in the pub. Thank you as we continue with our episode. Welcome to another episode of A Dram with Friends. We are extremely blessed to have a friend join us in the pub from uh, down south. Welcome Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Hey, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, I'm going to pour myself a dram well, uh, of uh, some Larceny bourbon. I figured I'd get some uh, U.S. whiskey in here. Uh, dram's <laughs> only an eighth of an ounce, so it's not a lot of whiskey. And uh, after working four night shifts at the Stampede, uh, I think I, I need one. So uh, <laughs> who is Deacon Harold for our, our friends in the pub? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a Catholic uh, evangelist, uh, speaker, and author. I uh, live in Portland, Oregon, uh, in the United States, and uh, uh, I've been ordained a deacon now 19 years, wow. uh, married uh, with four kids, and, um, you know, I'm in Immaculate Heart Catholic Church in Portland where I serve there uh, ever since I've been ordained. So, uh, yeah, it's a good life. I was a, a law enforcement for 23 years before leaving in 2012 to speak and to write full time. Wow. And uh yeah, so that that's the that's the short of it. <laughs> wow. So how long were you in law enforcement did you say? Uh 23 years. Wow, that's uh hats off to you and uh I'm uh a month away from starting my 33rd year, so uh I almost have 32 full in and yeah, it's it's an interesting journey, and and obviously during that time you became ordained uh, ordained as a deacon. How did that come about? Yeah, so in my uh, when I was a kid, I thought I had a call to uh, the priesthood, and uh, I went to a Benedictine high school run by Benedictine monks, and they had a come and see program, which I did all four years of high school, and thought I had a vocation to monastic life, and so I went off to college and then graduated and worked for a year and then joined the monastery and thought, this is it. I'm doing everything God wants me to do. And uh, ended up not staying in the monastery, but uh, meeting my wife and then uh, moving out to Oregon, but still feeling that, that pull, that tug, you know, that attraction. And that eventually led me to the diaconate. Um, you know, I, I was accepted into the program in 1996 and uh, there was no class that year, so I had to wait a year for the next cohort to start. And it's a five-year process, including a master's degree in theology. Wow. So 97 to uh, uh, 2002, 
uh, when I was ordained. And, um, yeah, so I, that, that call, that attraction never left. You know, and it was something that was actually um, nurtured, I think, in Eucharistic adoration as well. You know, um, sitting before the Lord and saying, um, you know, what do you want from me? <laughs> you know, there, there's something here. Um, what is it? How can I do, how can I do your will? And I remember specifically um, when I was getting ready to leave my job to speak and to write full time. I said, you know, to leave an entire career to go talk about Jesus wasn't an easy decision. I remember thinking, you know, saying, Lord, I'm a clean slate. Draw all over me. You know, and just allowing him to use me for his will. And that's scary, but there's also nothing uh, more rewarding. That's that's awesome. So you went from discerning the priesthood to to law enforcement. That's how how'd that happen? Yeah. So um, back when I went to college, I, most colleges in the United States have police departments. And um, back when I was in college, the school that I went to uh, was University of Notre Dame. And the only full scholarships they gave at that time were for athletes and graduate students. And so I had a, I had a schol- academic scholarship, but I had to work also um, part of the time. And so I ended up working for the police department. And uh, I, I worked there my sophomore, junior, and senior year uh, as a, a kind of like an intern. And then I got hired full-time uh, after graduation. Actually, I was I was offered the job during my senior year, and accepted the job because I think this would be great to you know stay here and and as I discern monastic life and and so it just seemed natural that when I left the monastery to get back into uh, law enforcement again, uh, which I did. And I when I left, I was the chief at the University of Portland uh, here in, in Portland, Oregon. Wow. So I was there from two thousand and one to 2012. And then I left uh, June 30th, 2012 was my last day. And I, my, my area of expertise was violence, risk and threat assessment. So after 9-11, um, I, I was the president of the uh, International of, of the Western Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. And the International Association sent all of the regional presidents to FLETC, to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, where we received uh, training in threat assessment, so assessing threats post 9-11. I got really good at it, and so I ended up going to Quantico, the FBI Academy, and uh, getting taking an advanced class in threat assessment. I ended up teaching a class at the police academy called Contemporary Threat Assessment Methodology. So I was teaching police officers and first responders how to identify and respond to threats of terrorism. And... Um, uh, I got good at that, and so I was approached by private businesses, school districts, universities to do what's called target hardening. So I would evaluate their processes and procedures and methods to help them become harder targets um, uh, of, uh, against violence and terrorism. And uh, that's what I was doing up until I, until, until I left in 2012. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm familiar with the, a lot of that type of work because I'm a, I was a community re- liaison officer. I was on our public uh, safety unit. So our riot squad, I did that for 17 years. So we studied a lot of, uh, a lot of different areas, uh, including how Seattle and, and those did their riots back in the day because we hosted G8. And so we, we've done lots of fun stuff over the years and, it, it's definitely a, an interesting 
field to go in. I'm in the high schools now, and I'm actually looking at Safe Oregon uh, and what they do for student tip lines down there as a, a model that maybe we can bring up here. So that's awesome. So oh, wonderful. What? Uh, how did you find balancing your Catholic identity in the world of law enforcement and and professionalism and and stuff like that leadership well as you as you know in the law enforcement community um the the faith is faith of the officers is few and far between to be honest i mean we have high divorce rates you know um uh, suicide alcoholism things like that are, are quite high in the law enforcement community and it's particularly tough these days at least the United States and, and, and law enforcement with everything going on with race relations and all of that. So, so it's tough. And, you know, faith in my life always played an important role. So I can never divorce myself uh, from, uh, from my faith. I think for me, what I tried to do, especially when I was a chief was to impart the values of the faith into how we interacted with our, um, with, with perpetrators and with our community. So, for example, um, I remember one uh, always treating people with dignity and respect, right? So, I remember one time we were dealing with a with an individual who was homeless and and you know kind of schizophrenic, kind of acting, you know, and and instead of throwing him to the ground and cuffing him, I said, "Wait a minute," you know, I tried to engage him in conversation and you know uh, just listened to him because often people just want to be listened to. You know, and we were able to defuse that situation. I remember one time in particular, we had an individual sitting in their car. And um, obviously, the guy was homeless, had all his stuff in his car. And a student called us and told us. So we went out and talked to the guy. And they, they brought him to my office. And and I, I said, you know, before you come in here, I need, you, I need my office to search your bag to make sure you don't have any weapons or anything. He said, no, no, no problem, please. And so we're looking through his bag. And, he, and, he, and uh, the officer pulls out this um, stack of cards. And the stack of cards had these drawings on, so these pencil drawing, hand drawings, very well done, like professional quality. And I said, wow, where'd you get these? He goes, oh, those are mine. I drew them. I said, get out of here, man. You ain't draw that. He said, no, seriously, I, I drew that. I said, you did this? And, I, and he goes, yeah. I said, wait a minute, back up. Tell me your story. What's going on with you, man? You know, so he told me a story. He had lost his job. And um, lost his house, uh, was living with his brother. Um, there was some dispute between him and his brother, and, and brother kicked him out, so he was living in his car. And he was at, uh, uh, at the university because he uh, is a soccer fan. He actually had tickets to the, to the women's soccer match that was later that afternoon. And so he was just waiting in the car to the soccer match. He, I mean, he was, he was very uh, genteel, you know, he's great personality. I'm like, wow. And so I called uh, as a deacon, I put my deacon hat on. I called and was able to get, um, him resources, a place to stay, shower, food, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and in fact, I even commissioned artwork from him. Wow. I was so impressed with what he did. I actually paid him to do a larger drawing of me, which I framed and, uh, and put on my wall at work. And, it, and when everybody, anybody asked me about it, I told them the story. I said, this is why we treat people the way we do. Because um, you never know, um, you know, uh, someone's story. You, you, 
you um you know walk a mile in their shoes and, and, and appreciate the fact that sometimes good things can happen when you treat people with, with with respect. In fact, I'll pull it up right here. I think I got the photo on my phone because I think I took a picture of it to show. Oh, here it is, right here. So here's the here. I don't know if you can probably can't see that, but that's the picture. Look at that. Isn't that awesome? That is. Be, because I was a monk, I I asked him to draw um like a a, a kind of a, a a french or italian scene kind of with the monastery at the top he just drew that out of his head it took him i think a couple of weeks but he came back to the office and brought it to me and i paid him and he you know it was just it was a beautiful exchange of joy because he gave me the, the 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 picture which i was so thrilled to get and then I gave him the money, which he was thrilled to get. So it was, a, it was a beautiful relationship. And we kept in touch until I left. You know, we stayed in touch. And, and he kept coming to the soccer games. I would always greet him. My officers would always greet him. It was just a, that, that's the stuff. That's we roll up our sleeves, you know, and get our hands dirty in the Lord's vineyard. You know, that, that's, that's the stuff right there. Well, and you, you, you talk about the dignity of the human person. And that's, that's what I, I try to, tell my co-workers and and I've, I've spent a career I learned as a young officer I was just explaining this story to a guy last night at work that uh, it was a, a woman with a biker gang he she was uh, with the sergeant of arms and he had assaulted her but wasn't cooperative but the way I treated her she ended up coming back to me and divulging a bunch of information I got to do some take four truckloads of property out of the guy's house and arrest him and all, all the good stuff. But that gave me an indication that it's how you treat these people and look at them and that dignity of the human person and I, the face of Jesus in everyone you meet. And sometimes it's really difficult to find that. Uh, but uh, it gives you a baseline to work from. And you talk about, dealing with uh, individuals like that. Here in the Calgary Police Service, we've started a bunch of programs. We've got uh, police officers working with mental health professional nurses and, and going out and dealing with the issues rather than just continuing it. And I was part of a couple programs setting them up, uh, Youth at Risk Development, where I was working one-on-one -on -one with youth at risk of falling into gangs. And and getting to know their stories and and talk to them and and walk with them and it's it's an awesome awesome opportunity that I wish I challenge the men that I deal with that the God Squad and stuff to just look at that young person and try and understand where they are rather than that punk down the street right exactly right you know I I tell the same thing when I give talks to school teachers. You know, um, you, you never know that one kid that you think, oh, man, this kid, you know, he has nothing going for him. You know, he's just a pain in the butt. But you don't know what that kid has going on at home. You don't know what kind of issues. And, and words of encouragement can completely change that kid's life. You know, because I was that kid. You know, I grew up in a house where my parents had a horrific marriage. They ended up eventually getting divorced. And, um, you know, that you carry that stuff with you uh, as a kid. And I remember my, my very first grade in, in high school, it was a history class. I was a freshman in high school. Mr. Frank Mullen 
was the teacher. And when Mr. Mullen gave back his test papers, he would walk up and down the aisles. He would turn your paper over your test paper over on your desk and he would continue up the aisle and down the next aisle and up the next aisle. And so he got to me and I'm nervous. I know I study. I said, I hope I did okay. And he turned the paper over and he kept going and I turned it over. I looked at it, it said B plus. I'm like, yeah, I audibly said, yes, just like that. And Mr. Mullen stopped. I'll never forget this as long as I live. He stopped and he backed up and he looked me right in the face and he said, and you're happy with that? And I remember looking at him thinking thinking to myself, yeah, I got to be. That's pretty good, you know. But 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 it was only later I realized what he really meant was you can do better than that. Yeah. You can do and it was the first time but besides my mom, right, that anybody challenged me or pushed me or encouraged me or even thought that I could be more or do more, you know, and it was, and that changed everything for me. And I ended up becoming the very first person in the history of my family ever to go to college, you wow. know, um, and then now I'm doing the things that I'm doing now because of men in my life that, again, that didn't take my father's place, but showed me, um, you know, how, how uh, men are called to serve, protect and defend, you know, um, to live their spirituality from the cross of Jesus Christ, to have men like that in your life is extremely important. That's why so many young men, and you've seen this in law enforcement, so many young people, men and women that don't have fathers at home often get involved in gangs because they're looking for that male father figure who's not there in the home. They can't find it in the community, so they go to the gangs. Yep. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for not just a sense of community and belonging, but they're looking for other men to be father figures for them that's the way they think they can find it which of course is disastrous yep yeah they're looking for that approval from an older male and and in the gang they're willing to do anything to get that and and that's where we have to do that in our churches because i i remember challenging uh, i'm sure you're familiar familiar with call to protect it in the churches so this was a Western Canada conference for all the di diocese leaders in that area. And uh, I was giving a talk about working with youth at risk. And I, I said, okay, I tell you tell these young people that God loves them and has a, an amazing plan for them and wants them in the church. Now, which church do I send them to? What church is going to greet them, accept them, and invite them into that journey. And that's where I think as churches we fall short, especially my experience up here, is we need to do a better job of inviting people into our church, especially our young people. No, I think you hit the nail right on the head. And what are we inviting into? What I mean, what is God inviting all of us to? He's inviting us to share life with him. He's inviting us into a relationship of intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving communion. That's what we're invited to. And that is not just good news, because we are talking about the gospel, evangelium, the gospel, word gospel means good news. But actually, it's more than good news. It's life-changing news. Why? Because the encounter with Christ can change your life. And that's what we're inviting people to. We're inviting them into a relationship where Christ can truly come into their life 
and they can fully become the person who God created them to be. You know, um, th there's a there's a phrase in theology called teleology. And uh, the, so what that means is that we believe that life um, has a purpose. There's a meaning behind everything. Whereas the, the culture with its atheist attitude, there is no purpose for anything. You know, so two very different diametrically opposed ways of thinking and approaching life. One leads to nothing and one leads to the fullness of joy and peace in that deep relationship with the Lord. And that's what we have to do. And I agree with you 100%. We have to do a much better job inviting people into that relationship. And the problem I think we face in the Catholic Church is, first of all, fear and trepidation of doing that, because a lot of us don't know our faith very well. Let's be real. You yep. know, uh, as Catholic, I mean, someone can tell you to score the latest, you know, uh, ice hockey match, or they can tell you all the names of the people on this baseball team, whatever, but they can't tell you the Ten Commandments. They, they can't tell you why they go to mass other than, well, we have to go or else we'll go to hell. I mean, that, no, you can go to mass every day and go to hell. <laughs> that, that's, that's not how it works. You know, and, and so we once we understand and begin to live the faith with passion and conviction ourselves, then that's going to the other going to other people gonna look at us and say, I want what he has. I want what she has. There's something there that's so far beyond me. That, that I, I want that, you know, I want that joy. I want that peace. I want that love. You know, I want to radiate that same love that this person is radiating. And it calls comes rooted in the Eucharist and, and rooted in our faith. That's, that's awesome. And, and that it's interesting. You say that is living that life because especially young people, they've heard all the platitudes. They want to see it in action. And, and that's where the young Young people that I worked with at risk, it was, it was after you start building that relationship, they, they're asking what makes you tick. You've never talked about God or anything, but you're living and walking as if you love this God that, that exists. And that's when the kids want to know what makes you tick? What gives you that joy? Why do, why do you do what you do? Right. And, uh, and, uh, so we talk about faith, family, food, and fun here, and you've talked about having kids. So is there is there a dish that Dad prepares that is a family favorite that you uh, you cook up for the family? Or well, I'm actually believe it or not a pretty decent cook. Uh, you know, because one thing it. my mother did teach us because I, I had two brothers and a sister, and I'm the oldest. Okay. So for us boys, she wanted to make sure that we knew the basics. We knew how to cook meals, simple meals. We knew how to uh, d uh, do our laundry, you know. So I guess we'd have to depend on anyone, you know. Um, we, we were young men before yeah. before we got married and all that, right? So it was, it was awesome. And so, gosh, I have so I have a meatloaf I do, which is which is pretty good. Uh, the fried chicken with a special seasoning blend that I like to use. Uh, there's a stuffed pork. Uh, I, I make my own apple chutney recipe Ooh. that I stuff, and, and actually I put that on top, and I have a gorgonzola cheese and spinach uh, mix with some other other little surprise in there. I, I you know I slit, I, well, I marinate the pork, slit it, stuff it, you know, put the uh, uh, toothpicks Ooh. in, and uh, uh, sear it off, and sear it off, put the toothpicks in, and put it in the oven to finish, and then use the the, the apple chutney uh, on top, you know. So and I'm from the Caribbean. And the one thing I do miss, though, is the Caribbean food. You know, uh, here in Oregon, we don't have the ingredients 
uh, to cook those kinds of meals because I was born in Barbados. I was born in the okay. West Indies, so I grew up eating West Indian food, and which we used to get all the time because we live right. I live. I'm from New Jersey, the state of New Jersey originally, right across the river from New York. So we, you know, we and there's a huge Caribbean community in New York. So we used to get that those food and that spices all the time. So I grew up on that. And now my mother, God rest her soul, she she lived with us and she, uh, from 2000, um, 2006 to 2009, and she died in 2009. And, and she used to, my brother used to send her to the ingredients, she used to make the food for us. And boy, I, I miss that so much. So, uh, and one of the things I do, as I mentioned as a speaker, I do travel. So fortunately, I am able to go to cities and able to get some authentic Caribbean food when I'm traveling. So I'm grateful for that. Uh that's one of the beauties of living in Canada because we've got such a diverse population and and yeah, there's a huge Caribbean community in Canada. Yeah, where so it's it in Calgary here. It's not as big as places like Toronto and but uh, you you can still go find their their family pepper sauce that they make or uh, it's uh, yeah I I enjoy the the variety of food that we have access to here in Calgary. And it's, it's awesome. And, uh, I, there's a couple of Caribbean restaurants here that uh, I can go and enjoy the, the food. So, uh, I want one of the segments that we talk about is, uh, a lot of young men don't even know what a man is. So what advice do you give your 18 year old self? Yeah, it's the same advice I give to my 18-year-old son. You know, he's, he's actually he's 18. And there what I go. started doing when he became a, started becoming a young man, I would take him what we call guys' night out. So I would take him out, and we would talk about things. You know, son, the culture says that um, women are can be men and men can be women. Or, it, that's not true, son. He, here's the truth. Son, the culture says that marriage is something else other than one man and one woman. That's not true, son. Let me let me tell you the truth. And so we talk about issues. We talk about things. Why did I do that? Because first of all, I want him to be able to feel comfortable coming to me and talking to me about, about important issues and difficult things. Because where do young men go? They go to gangs, as we talked about earlier, or to rock stars or to athletes or to, you know, th those aren't the people you want to get advice from. They should be getting it from their father. And so I want them to come to me. I want, I want him to feel comfortable trusting me. And so we do it over a meal. That's why we call it guys night out. We go out to a restaurant and we have some, we have food, you know, we have our favorite foods and we're eating and we're talking very relaxed atmosphere, no pressure. He can ask any question he wants. We'll talk about it. And then when we're done, we go see the Thor or the Avengers or, you know, uh, black Panther or something like that. Cause we're men, you know, it, it also acts as a beautiful bonding experience as well. And so, um, for those young men out there, look, you, you know, the culture is going to try to attract you and draw you away. You know, um, yes, some of you have got, you've gone to church probably with your parents every Sunday, you've gone to youth group, you've gotten confirmed, but then you have to ask yourself, honestly, ask yourself, um, yes, I, I've received the sacraments, but am I actually living from my faith? Do the sacraments mean anything to me? Um, does going to mass, what does that mean when I go to mass? What, who am I receiving there? Um, is there a disconnect between my faith and my everyday life? Honestly, ask yourself that. 
And then, you know, before you abandon and leave the faith, which so many young people do these days, you know, they go off to the colleges and universities, which used to be places that used to teach young people how to think. Now they're indoctrination centers that are teaching young people what to think. You know, so I want to encourage young people to think for themselves deeply, intimately, personally, and, and not be afraid to engage the Lord and to seek truth, to seek objective truth. Don't let the culture lure you away. Don't let the culture, you know, uh, feed you from the, from the dumpster. You know, um, uh, the church is trying to give you the, the richness and the beauty and the fullness of God's love and God's mercy. That, that, so, which is not truth as a concept, but truth as a person. Because Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And once you align yourself with, with what you know to be true and good and beautiful, now you are fully equipped to become the man of God that God created you to be. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. One one other segment that we do, uh, ride, I ride with Jeff Cavins, and he, he talks about riding with your posse, so your go-to saints. Who who would be your top go-to saints that you that you walk with every day? Well, for me, of course, it'd be the deacon saints, right? So it's uh, St. Vincent, Ephraim, uh, the, the deacon from the Easter, who's also a doctor of the church, Lawrence, the martyr, Francis of Assisi, Right, who's a, a, a lot of people don't realize he was a permanent deacon. He was never a priest. Oh, wow. um, and of course, Stephen, the proto martyr, the first martyr of the church, and actually apostles was a deacon. And so those would be my posse, if you will. You know, I remember a very poignant moment for me during my ordination was during the litany of the saints, where you lie face down uh, on the marble at the altar, and you know they're they're praying. You know, St. Augustine, pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. You know, and when it got to the deacon saints, I remember like tearing up and thinking to myself, who am I to walk in the footsteps of these great, humble, loyal sons of, of God, these, these great deacons? You know, and I'm like, man, I, when I get up off this floor, I'm going to be ordained. I'm going to enter into that brotherhood. You know, I'm going to enter into that fraternity with them. Boy, what I, my, I've got an obligation and responsibility to live up, you know, to, to, the, to the high bar that those guys set. Because they, all of those guys are what we hope to be one day with God in heaven, right? So I'll still be a deacon in heaven because, you know, deacon uh, ordination is one of the three sacraments that leaves a permanent mark on the soul, an indelible mark or a character that can never be removed. You know, the other ones are baptism and confirmation. And so I don't know how I'm going to be a deacon in heaven. I have no clue. But I'm looking forward um, to really fulfilling uh, my diaconal ministry here on earth the way God needs me to be. And then also living that fully uh, with him in heaven. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for visiting us in the pub today. Thank you for your time. I pray that the border opens one day and I'll be able to make one of the meetings at CMLA where we can sit and uh, have a, a coffee together and uh, a visit. And so the origin of the word whiskey is a Gaelic word called Ishkabaha, which means water of life. And my prayer ah. is that you continue to lead many souls to the true water of life. And thank you for all your 
all you do for the men of North America. Thank you, and keep up the great work you're doing there in Canada as well. And I hope to be back up there soon. I mean, my my last trip, as a matter of fact, was to Lloydminster. Uh, oh wow! Um, that was my last my last trip to Canada before COVID and everything shut down. So I hope I hope to be back one day soon. We will be riding our motorcycles through there as we escort the bishop for the military back to uh, Ottawa on our road trip uh, this year on our motorcycles. So oh, that's wonderful. awesome. Outstanding. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of A Dram with Friends. Like and subscribe. Go to all podcast platforms to look for it on podcast or go to godsquad.ca to support our mission.